This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How exactly does a Harvard grad with one of the lowest conservative ratings in the Congress, lower than some members we think of as the far left, become the highest-ranked woman in the Republican Party as we know it today. What really is at the crux of what we call Trumpism, policy or performance? What kinds of calculations and pivots and sacrifices of personal integrity does it take to become a Trump Republican? The path to powerful, prestigious political positions within our nation's government can take many different routes— Some are bought, some are earned, some are inherited. But House Republicans have just ousted one of their highest-ranking members from leadership, Liz Cheney, in a voice vote that took all of four minutes for the simple crime of admitting that Joe Biden won a free and fair election. They replaced her with someone who many people had never heard of, but who had been positioning herself for a move like this for years. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're talking about Elise Stefanik, the newly installed House Republican conference chair who transformed into an unabashed Trump supporter and replaced Liz Cheney as the number three House Republican last week. We recently announced that we're going to produce exposés and backstories on those individuals who represent the gravest threats to democracy— the people who are keeping Trumpism alive and advancing dangerous ideologies. Now, most of these episodes are going to be exclusively for our Politicology Plus community, but since she's been in the headlines this last week, we want to understand who Elise Stefanik is, what she's after, and how she plans to attain her goals. Here to help us answer these questions is a familiar voice, the one and only Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist and tech founder who served as campaign manager for Joe Walsh's primary challenge to Donald Trump and was formerly a senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. And she happens to have been a classmate of Elise Stefanik. Lucy, thanks for being here. This should be fun. Good to see you again, Ron. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So here's what you need to know about Stefanik. She grew up in upstate New York. She attended the Albany Academy for Girls, which is an elite private college preparatory school. She attended Harvard, becoming the first in her family to earn a college degree. And after graduating, she quickly rose through the Republican establishment, serving in several roles in the Bush White House. She was an advisor to vice presidential nominee Paul Ryan. And she then went on to become the youngest woman ever elected to Congress, representing New York's 21st district. So 
Lucy, start us off uh, by maybe sharing how you came to know and observe Elise Stefanik uh, long before she was elected to Congress, and what did you think of her then? That's true. I was aware of uh, Elise Stefanik when she was at Harvard. She was a few years ahead of me. And, you know, Harvard is a pretty liberal place. Uh, so people who are conservative, I was a, a columnist for the Harvard Crimson, um, a conservative columnist. Probably now it wouldn't seem so conservative, but but my views have evolved. If, um, on that college campus at the time, I felt like I was quite far right. You know, you look up to people who have come before you. She was a few years ahead of me. Um, she was also pretty active on campus, wrote a lot of editorials, stuck her neck out on issues. She was very involved at the Institute of Politics, became vice president of the IOP. Um, That later would emerge in her more recent history. Um, But she was a really a, a young conservative woman that other women, I think, looked up to. Hmm. I had perhaps a slightly different take. I think that a lot of people have felt really betrayed by the path that Lee Stefanik has gone down. To me, it has not been all so surprising when we kind of track back to her earlier uh, iterations, (laughs) (laughs) versions. (laughs) Um, I really became very aware of her when she ran for Congress because she was such a dynamic figure that among her former classmates, our former classmates, she was a person that Democrats wanted to help. She was first Mm. elected to Congress in 2014, and I had friends fundraising for her, Democrats calling me and saying, you'll help Elise, right? I was working at Goldwater at the time. And I I always had kind of a bad feeling about Elise, um, a a bad gut feeling that has turned out to be right. Um, But I think... She was a person that people thought of as an answer to what was going wrong in the Republican Party. I was thinking the other day about something that Tucker Carlson said Uh at a dinner (laughs) (laughs) I was a part of in 2012, right after the 2012 election. And he said to this audience of would-be Republican conservative donors, it's hard to get people to vote for you when they feel like you hate them. And this was a call to arms about, well, the opposite of call to arms, rather. It was a call to a more compassionate approach. And I think she really represented that for a lot of people. She was going to be that new lane for Republicans to carve out that was for something better, that could have a very broad appeal. So let's talk about that new lane and why there was this consensus that we needed one at the time. Do you want to give a brief summary of the the autopsy report, the growth and opportunity report, during which like that was that was sort of the the background that she came to power in, right? Yeah, that was such a fascinating document in 2012. It was it was really it was post Romney loss, and a lot of it focused on the mechanics. What were the kind of uh, what was missing in RNC Republican National Committee data, technology, and infrastructure that that had led to that loss. You know, why was it that they could not compete with the DNC's incredible tech stack? So there was quite a bit of that. But more than that, there was really a focus on how to not have the kind of 
47% moment ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 47% moment being when Mitt Romney said in 2012, there are just, you know, 47% people are just never going to never going to vote for me because I'm not giving them what they want. It was a, right. a hot mic moment. Or they're all takers, right? I think right. something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And when you when you read the autopsy from 2012 in the post 2012 autopsy, you see a Republican party that is really making a new commitment to pushing forward what were then uh classically liberal but also sort of compassionately conservative ideas of things like, you know, people know best for themselves. They make the best decisions for their family. Uh, We want every child to have access to uh, a high quality education. Uh, We want to be, we want to be open and welcoming to um, immigrants who just want to come here and make a living. Uh, I mean, I could go on and Mm -hmm. on. It it is a, a, a document that makes bears no familiarity to what we see today. Zero. Yeah. So help us think through then what Republicans saw as the future of the party and Elise in particular as part of that future, almost as a symbol of that future at the time. Yeah. So I think the Republican Party has a big white guy problem. The Mm -hmm. Republican Party had a big white guy problem then too. So she's at least a white gal. (laughs) (laughs) But when she was elected, she was the youngest member of, uh, youngest woman ever elected to Congress. Um, And she was elected in New York's 21st Congressional District, which is a kind of weird district. Uh, So it had been a Republican district for about 100 years until a Democrat had taken over in 2009, but for not such a long time. And so it was an open seat. And she smoked her opponent. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a carpetbagger. She's a person who's the daughter of a successful business owner. And New York 21 is actually near her family's vacation home. So oh, wow. she um, okay. moved into her family's vacation home, got a Ford F-150 pickup truck, and she began traversing the district. Um, and it's a district, it is a district that looks a lot like the districts that we think of as kind of being ground zero for this stuff. Yeah. So working class, more more veterans in the district than anywhere else in New York, um, but mm. many, many working class communities. This is upstate New York, big time hunting communities. Mm-hmm. A weird thing I was remembering about this district is that even though it has some of the kind of coal town, kind of left behind qualities that we see in other places that have become ground zero for this stuff, it also has this kind of environmental streak um, because hmm. it has Adirondacks. Uh, oh, right. Right? Yeah. So big national park. A lot of it abuts the Canadian border. Uh, so you have sportsmen, right, which is sort of a sort of different political force. Yeah. And so she packaged herself as a person who wanted to bring back jobs to the area, um, was supportive of environmental protection measures, wants to protect your Second Amendment gun rights, but has, of course, thinks that there are limits, uh, is pro-life, but thinks that Republicans should be more compassionate about the situation that women find themselves in, um, supportive of other types of what a lot of conservatives would have derided as kind of interventionists or entitlement policies Mm. that grow the size and scope of government. So she really did represent this very appealing and dynamic candidate who just was being sensible 
I think, and wanted to do what was best for her constituents to the point that she had broad support even among many Democrats. There was a former GOP congressman who recently told Time magazine, quote, she had developed a really good brand. She was the young, smart, vivacious millennial who could appeal to constituencies that Republicans had difficulty with. I think that's a really good, like a, a good characterization. Yeah, I, I think so. And she, people talk about how she turned into a foil for Trump in 2019 during the first impeachment. Yeah. But she also was a foil for the GOP in the opposite way right. during Trump's ascendancy. Yeah. She was so much more willing initially to be out in front, really taking him on from the time that he began his candidacy and even early through his presidency. So yeah. she, uh, the day after Trump became the sort of presumptive nominee that was on, on May 4th of 2016, Elise came out and said, I will support my party's nominee. Even through that fall, she wouldn't even say his name. Mm. <laughs> and that's telling because she had really only been in office for a very less than a year before Donald Trump announced his candidacy in the first place. Right, right. She hadn't even been there that long. She called him out when he attacked Gold Star families. She called him out over the Access Hollywood tapes. She, throughout 2016, was saying he should not ignore the dangers that Vladimir Putin and Russia pose for us. She spoke out against the Muslim ban. She supported the Mueller investigation. She criticized the border wall. She opposed his budget cuts to things like the EPA. She was really mm. out there. Mm. She was a foil in the opposite way for what she's become. Right. She was, uh, as if we keep talking about lanes, yeah. her lane was, I'm still here. I'm still, I haven't lost my mind. I'm going to work with this guy, but I'm still the person you sent to Congress. And even in the in the lead up to his election, she was saying that what she was a part of in Congress was the governing caucus. Mm. That was her phrase. Like, That's right. not showboats, just, you know, we're here to get things done. We're common sense conservatives. We're people who reflect the values of the American voters who sent us here. Yeah. Now, we know a large portion of congressional Republicans made the choice early on in the Trump presidency to embrace the president and become defenders of his record and even his behavior even if they'd previously had reservations. And given everything that you just established in the way Elise went about standing up to the president, she also stands out in the way that she began to position herself closer and closer to Trump throughout his single term in office. So there's a quote, I don't know who it's attributed to, there go my people, I must find out where they're going so I can lead them. That to me feels like it uh, it sums up her approach to public life. Um, but I but I really want to get your take on when this began to turn. When did she begin to switch lanes? If we're going to continue using that metaphor, um, and was there a particular catalyst for that? That's it. that's a great quote. I have to remember <laughs> that. That's really really good. Yeah, one of the ways that she avoided being swept up in the in trumpism shall we say yeah. and i shouldn't say avoided i i think i should say the the reason she chose not to initially then, yeah yes is that she still had a special thing something special about her right mm. this kind of rising star millennial woman 
Um, she went to Swift work. Um, she went to Swift work trying to promote other women within the Republican Party. She got huge amounts of financial backing uh, and and went to work in 2018 of trying to get more women elected and really wanted to kind of make herself into the clearinghouse for elevating women within the Republican mm-hmm. Party. She has a pack called Elevate. <laughs> I think that the luster really began fading. And, and I think that you see the way that she even dealt with other Republicans changing. There are some things that have remained the same. So, for instance, earlier on, at the beginning of Trump's time in office, Elise would talk about how she was going to go get involved in primary fights, right? Because she was going to get into Republican primary fights um, to make sure that the most viable candidate, in mm-hmm. other words, code word, centrist, mm-hmm. moderate, um, was going to make it to the top of the ticket as as the Republican nominee for congressional races, whatever. When operatives say electable, that's right. what they mean. Right, yeah. right. Viable, right. electable means moderate. Right. Yeah. And there was a moment where a couple of Republican congressmen came after her. Like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, we should not be getting involved in primary fights. Mm-hmm. And she would say she she posted a thing at the time. I think it was like a tweet or a news release. And she said something about like, you know, Tom Emmer says it's not a good idea. Newsflash. I wasn't asking for permission. <laughs> it was all this kind of like girl boss bullshit, right? <laughs> like, um, I'm this young woman and I'm not asking for permission. So she was sort of riding like the nevertheless she persisted yeah, way. And get out of my way. Right. Yeah. And then in 2018, suddenly you have AOC, right? Who then mm-hmm. becomes the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. A whole bunch of new faces. You have the squad. The, mm-hmm. And suddenly it's like, hmm, Okay, actually, over here, we have a bunch of women who we've elected to Congress who actually seem to have a women-first agenda. <laughs> so that's when you have to start making, I think, some some uh, some new calculuses about yeah. where you go. And one of the things to remember about all politicians, and this is getting much, much worse as we sort of see a nationalization of politics. And and Liz Cheney herself actually touched on this last week when she talked about how we need fewer um, people in Congress who are just like there to be social media stars, mm. right? And and so there there are some kind of like new media, yep. kind of changing landscape yep. things that come into play here. But the other thing is that I mean, politicians, by and large, there's something wrong with them. I mean, there's yeah. there's yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there's something off about them. I mean, how many candidates have you and I worked with for, <laughs> et cetera, been around? They, they are a different breed. It's and a different—it is—imagine, It is. It is a, imagine, think back to how miserable middle school is, yeah. right? Yeah. What makes life after middle school great? Not living in a world where you're in a sort of constant popularity contest. Mm-hmm. Politicians are people who think, oh, that, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, want, I want more. I want to be that. <laughs> <laughs> I want every two years, for members of Congress, every two years, I want to subject myself to finding out if people still like me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And this is different than just like other types of celebrity, right? Because yeah. if you're in an actor or a musician, you find your niche. Like, uh, I do really well in this kind of film, yeah. right? Or like, this yeah. is my music niche, right? right? There is no niche in politics, right? right? It's the voters are the voters, yeah. right? Right, right. So there's a piece of this. It, it is helpful 
not to go too far afield, yeah, but to keep great. that backdrop yes. of the fact that these are all megalomaniac, yeah. screw loose people yeah. in general. And 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 even just establishing that really can be helpful in in not banging your head against the wall trying to figure out why these people do what yeah. they do. It's a yeah. it's a nice, it's a helpful <laughs> It is helpful to keep in mind the state of mind one must be in in order to pursue this. Right. Yeah. Right. So she was named a member of Trump's impeachment defense team and emerged as a fierce Trump ally. And that was probably around the time, that was probably the the the, the biggest event that sort of marked her transition, I would imagine. And then, you know, the more she leaned into Trumpism, the more her fundraising benefited. In the last quarter of 2019, she raised $3.2 million, which is a 7x increase from her previous quarter's uh, haul. So she was starting to see the fruits of this transition away from whatever, out of the old lane and into the new lane, the Trumpist lane, and then became the co-chair of Trump's re-election campaign in New York and started to get even more media attention than she had previously. So how do you think this is This is all compounding in, in the mindset of a person who we just discussed has to have a few screws loose in order to pursue this kind of life? I think that Elise came up in the elder statesman school of thought about politics, right? It was, she was going to go to Washington as this young woman who was certainly more dynamic, younger, a woman, fresh-faced, but she was going to operate in the style of her mentors, of people like Paul Ryan, uh, you know, uh, George W., um, and that that was how she was going to govern. When Liz Cheney talks about how there are too many people there just to be social media stars, I think Elise Stefanik was there to mold herself in the style of Liz Cheney. Mm -hmm. I think that there mm -hmm. was a really pivotal moment during impeachment where uh, Adam Schiff said something during a hearing and she, I mean, almost shouting, almost screaming into the microphone said, what is the interruption now? And after that, everything changed for her. Trump wrote that she was a star she gained 200,000 new small online donors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when she really got her biggest taste of what this could be for her. Mm. And because of the way she'd positioned herself in the context of that impeachment, there was really no turning back. You don't, you're, you're in it now, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think that given all the other ways in which her star had fallen, uh, having or been outshined by the income by the newbies, totally yeah. newer, younger, yeah. <laughs> fresher faced members of Congress. Yeah, she knew at that moment, this is my new lane. And the other thing that I think is important when thinking about someone like Stefanik, but any of these guys, Holly, uh, any of them really, is that it, it used to be that you would run for Congress, run for national politics. And your core goal was really to remain elected. Yeah. If you had, there are so many ex-members of Congress. I mean, there are 435 members of Congress. There are tons of people. You can walk out onto the you know middle of, middle of Park Avenue you. and you right. can. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so it's not such a great gig if you are not a big yeah. name. Yeah. And you don't, if you lose, traditionally, you go back to. Your Whatever town. your job was. Right. You yeah. go back to what your job was. Um, maybe if you were influential, you can maybe become a lobbyist. Maybe you can become like, you know, an executive director of some kind of bogus mm -hmm. nonprofit that does something. something. <laughs> right. 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 But it's not such a plum gig, really. Yeah. But now 
we've had such a nationalization of politics where it doesn't really matter if she stays right. in office because she's now this darling of the party, right? right? It doesn't matter for Josh Hawley if he loses his Senate reelect, right? Because he now is the persona Josh Hawley and their book deals and speaking right. fees and cable news slots and just like this continued massive following. So I think she had the realization, oh, the rules that I came in playing, we're, we're in a different game. Totally, totally different game. And actually, I want to pause just for a moment, if we can take a little rabbit hole yeah. for a second and talk about this nationalization of politics for a minute, because I think every one of our listeners has heard the, uh, the phrase, all politics is local. It's not anymore. Say more about what you mean by the nationalization of politics. Well, I think even when we just look at the mechanics of running for office, they've changed. And there are ways in which the changes are great. So it used to be that to spend like five minutes at any state legislature and you will see exactly mm -hmm. what the old way of things doing, doing things is. So it was basically you become a precinct committee person. And when I say the old way, I mean in the last 15 years, right. this was still oh, yeah, the yeah, way. Yeah. No, this is this brand is, new is, from Trump, from the Trump era. This like, is yeah. what anyone who wanted to be involved in politics did. Like when you were like 20, right? right. 18, yep. you become mm -hmm. a, a an LD, you become a precinct committee man. You just start working like the lowest levels of of the the political apparatus. Not right. just not just if you want to be a politician, just if you want to be a successful consultant, whatever. Right. right. You start going to LD meetings. Maybe you, if you are, if we're going to stay with the politician track, you run for state legislature, right? Or you run for school board. Uh, this is like mm -hmm. how Marsha Blackburn, someone That's like right. Marsha Blackburn yeah. came up, right? This yeah. is a very traditional path. And many, many people in office now came up through this path. Yeah. And then, and you really work to ingratiate yourself with the party because the local and state parties, that is the mechanism by which you are going to raise money, get people to volunteer to help you. You need to start warming up to the donor class in your area. You want to show you're a team player. Then it keeps, the funnel keeps getting smaller, right? Because everyone around you also wants to be in Congress. And then if you make it, then you're in Congress, but you have to keep thanking those people who helped get you there. And you're always running. You're always in at the RNC offices dialing for dollars. Yep. That's really shifted. Because so, it was all focused on your little patch of turf in your state and all the people around you because you wouldn't raise significant amount of money from out of state right. unless you could prove that you were actually popular enough where you live in order to, you know, to serve those people in order to get more national attention. Right. And now. And you would be getting those dollars because you had a, an important committee assignment. Right. right. And because, you know, a corporation really wanted to make sure to influence how you yeah. felt about their pet issue. Now you can become a person who becomes a viable congressional candidate overnight. Think about someone like Lauren Boebert. Mm -hmm. I mean, people who are, we we now have a system that rewards extremes, right? So you don't get, like, you don't go viral overnight for saying something moderate. <laughs> or sane. <laughs> no. Yeah. You go viral overnight for doing something like Lauren Boebert going to a Beto O'Rourke rally and sort of like, having a million guns on, her, yeah. you know, belt and yeah. saying crazy yeah. stuff. And anyway, yeah. so that means that, and, and you can raise tons of money out of state, right? And that happens on both sides. That's because of just sort of the change in people's, it, go ahead. It's also because of the flattening of hierarchies, essentially. Yes. Right? You don't have that funnel structure because there is no, that like the, the, everything is, the internet has completely flattened 
the 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 playing field. Right. Flattened it. And a lot of that is really good. Yeah. Some of that is really good. It's also how you get, um, you know, well, she's probably not helping the centers around, but it's also how people who some listeners may feel fond of got elected. People like AOC, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, all kinds of all kinds of members, including some who are really good ones. Um, but in general, the system now rewards it does not reward statesmanship right. and it rewards uh just sort of like the same thing that gamesmanship yeah. and the same kind of it's it's basically like trying to become a YouTube yeah. star. It is it right? is it's it like, is like trying to become a YouTube star except there are grave consequences. So, yeah, and so you think about I was thinking what's different about Elise yeah. than others? Yeah. She's still really really early in her career, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. Susan Collins and and one of the things that I think is interesting about like a, a similarity in some ways yeah. between even now between a Susan Collins and an Elise Stefanik is if you look at her, if you look at how Elise did in her district in 2020, the district as a whole, she, she won every County, but some of the counties that she won a few months ago went for Joe Biden, right? She was still, able to thread the same kind of needle that someone like Susan Collins is threading. You just said Susan Collins for the third time you have to leave the studio, turn around, spit three times, and then you can come back in. <laughs> but, <laughs> Sorry. But, but, it, <laughs> but uh, like uh, a person who's able to thread the needle of like, I could, uh, a ticket where both a Joe Biden and yeah. an Elise Stefanik could have the same voters, right? Yep. So now you're seeing that she she was really trying to thread that needle, and now we've gotten away from that, yeah. I think. No, but all of this is—it's really important to understand the mechanics of how someone like Elise Stefanik can become so powerful. Because, because if those traditional routes were still the, the normal way of rising to power— she, we wouldn't be in the situation. She wouldn't have gained all this notoriety. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have happened that way. Um, she wouldn't have seen a 7x increase in her fundraising numbers in quite the same. You know what I mean? The, there would have been more, I think, uh, institutional checks against her in, term, in in the form of leadership, for example, right? Liv Cheney wouldn't be in the position that she was in if it hadn't been for that flattening. Right. That's not an argument against the flattening. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a description of of how the, the system has changed. Right. And we've seen a lot of earlier casualties of that new system. So yeah. someone like Jeff Flake, yeah. um, someone like Kelly Ayotte, um, you know, members who, uh, Mia Love, members who were bucking the party yeah. line. Yeah. One of the things that has not caught up in the kind of nationalization piece is that you still have to get through a Republican primary. Right. So it's balancing both. It, it Unfortunately, it is not, the, the primary system is not cut out, cut, caught up to the new way that we elevate people. Right. <laughs> so uh, back to Elise, she never claimed the 2020 election was rigged or stolen, but she still parroted the baseless allegations and conspiracy theories about irregularities, um, including an appearance on Newsmax where she feigned concern about Dominion software. Uh, she signed on to the infamous amicus brief filed by Ken Paxton, who's the Texas AG, asking the Supreme Court to consider rejecting election results in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Wisconsin, and Despite the insurrection, she still voted to overturn Biden's win in Pennsylvania, which prompted Harvard to strip her from her senior advisory council of the Institute of Politics, which she was so involved in. So this pivot 
wasn't just for temporary self-preservation. She wasn't trying to just survive another election. She's playing the long game. And I think we should talk about what her motivating ambitions are and, and going forward. Where does this lane take her next? And you know, now that she's the number three most powerful Republican in the House. Well, something that is said a lot, and I hate it. <laughs> I hate when people talk about the Republican Party today and they say, there's nothing conservative about today's Republican Party because I think those labels are stupid. They're and it's useless. Also a cop-out. Yeah. It's like, I'm not going to take, it's, it's actually something that never Trump conservatives say, never Trump Republicans or ex-Republicans say to not have to be accountable for yeah. all the things that came before. That they were um, Exactly. Right. Exactly. But I will say in the case of Elise Stefanik, I think that who she actually is and how she's voted, I mean, things like voting to keep us in the Paris Climate Accord, to force Trump to stay in the Paris Climate Agreement, um, you know, uh, all, wow. uh, you name it, yeah. right? Like um, opposing budget cuts, criticizing his border wall. It really reflects that we don't know where she's going to mm. go as conference chair. And it kind of backs up this idea that there is no policy agenda. And I think that even though Trump is obviously still at the center of the party, Trump doesn't have any policy agenda either. Right. So he doesn't care. Right. The The risk is what are the things that motivated his ascendancy and rise? And and I think it's worth considering whether someone like Elise Stefanik ever held those views that we talked about before to begin with, or if that was also a calculus. Yeah. I think yeah. it's it's worth considering that all of these people, like Elise Stefanik, are just craven people and that they're willing to capitalize on pretty much anything to meet the moment of spotlight. So I mm -hmm. she did announce in her first in her first conference meeting that she was going to require people to wear masks. So, you know, that's very different. Yeah. But it, it it's it's very very hard to know what to expect from someone like Stefanik other than a commitment to the drumbeat of proto-fascism. Dear leader. Big lie, dear leader. So, zooming out just a little bit, I mean, and this is the last question, I think, but what does it mean then? Because I, I think you're totally right about all of this, that ideology actually is completely divorced from whatever the Republican Party is or wherever it's going now. And so what does it mean that one of our only two major political parties has completely removed itself from that conversation about policy, about, um, about how to govern? And where does it go from here, right? The question everybody wants to, uh, yeah. I have been thinking about the Tea Party lately. Okay. I've been thinking about <laughs> uh, because in another life, you know, I was building grassroots coalitions and mm -hmm. the Tea Party were so active and ripe for calling their members of Congress, calling their state legislators, showing up to testify on bills, you name it. You could get these activists to do anything and it was really helpful that uh, they really seemed to have a lot of politics in common with the organizations I was working for, um, small government, free markets, uh, 
like, let's get rid of occupational licensing. Let's we're concerned about this or that reform. It was like they could get so activated on anything. And then suddenly we were also seeing that they also opposed uh, any kind of cuts to Medicaid or any hmm. kind of reform of Social Security or any kind of repeal of the individual mandate or of, you know, pre-existing condition um, sort of language in Obamacare. All the stuff they liked. <laughs> All the stuff they liked, but but also it reflected that even members of the Tea Party themselves, they just wanted to get mad about stuff, yeah. right? It was hard to, when it came down to it, they didn't have any policy positions. Right. They're, m- most of them are rabid Trump supporters now. Yep. I, I noticed the other day a, an activist that worked with me on gaining access to experimental medication going through FDA approval has made himself like a has a huge following of people and is sort of promoting anti-vax stuff, right? The person oh, wow. who worked on it. Oh wow. And so I say this to mean I think we have to we have to assume that there is no philosophical core to the Republican Party except white grievance. Other people are getting more than I am. Um, you know, I'm I'm not getting what I deserve. Yeah. And so there is no, you could, if you wanted to figure out what will their policy agenda be next month, next year, next decade, you could throw spaghetti on the wall and it could, who knows where you'd land, but that would be mm. as good of a, of a, of an indicator as, as anything. And so I think that for someone like Stefanik, I think she will continue to tilt like a windmill However, she sees sees fit, and she has gotten a taste now mm-hmm. of the celebrity that comes with being allied with Trump and being allied with the Steve Bannons of the world, which is certainly not where she came from. But w- once you get that taste, yeah. I think you're all in, and you're going to see someone like her um, really just a race to the bottom of of whatever sort of the ugliest rhetoric du jour is. And she's a person who should scare us all so much more than anyone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because as you've laid out today, there are all of these moments where she doesn't come out and say the election was stolen, but she votes against certification, right? She doesn't, she, she does all these things where with Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's out in the open. She's a lunatic. Everybody knows she's a lunatic. Totally. Yeah. Elise Stefanik, Josh Hawley, those kinds of people, people who are candidates right now, people like J.D. Vance, Josh Mandel, those are the people who should really scare us. Yeah, because with this form of celebrity that she's now gotten a taste of also comes a dangerous form of power. Absolutely. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>